the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. why I implore all of you, get yourself a good Bible. Read the scriptures carefully, in depth. Study the Word of God. And when, it, when you do that, it's not just so that you finally can understand who God is. That's important. But understand who God is to you and how you are going to respond to this God in submission and yieldedness and obedience to Him. So command is almost worthless if we don't obey it. And then the protection. To know that in whatever measure that God is there to wrap His ever-loving arms around you, to take care of you to the point. And for us who are, a Christian, who are Christians, our protection may not be just in this world that we come out smelling like a rose. It will be that when we die, we'll spend eternity with the rose of Sharon. And that's the greatest rose we could ever have. Well, back to this passage here. Let's go to the second trial. Jesus before the religious courts. Jesus before the religious courts. You'll notice in your notes that I'm giving you 12 through 14, and then I'm skipping verses 15 through 18, and I'm going to 19 through 24. The reason I'm doing that is because those verses I'm skipping over is going to deal with, uh, are going to deal with Peter. And I want to put him in a special trial compartment, and I want to talk about him in a moment. So I'm going to separate him out of this event. So it's going to look a little disjointed because I want you to just see the religious court, the religious trial at this time, as well as the way John is projecting it. So let's begin now at verse 12. It says, So the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and bound him. Although they didn't need to do that, Jesus went forth. And it says, And he led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now let's just pause for a moment because I want to talk about what's happening here. So as you read all the Gospels, you're going to see that there's something big happening. What you see here is the word Annas. Now Annas is referred to here as the high priest, but technically, technically, that's a key word, he is not the high priest. Now it's not that there's a confusion or contradiction of Scripture because he also, Scripture also says you have Caiaphas, the high priest. Now why isn't it a contradiction? Because Annas was the high priest during this time of Jesus, but not during the trial here. In fact, he was such a strong religious high priest, he actually put together what I like to call a religious high priest machinery to do what he wanted to for financial gain in the control and influence of Israel. Now, Annas was not only a high priest, but he had four sons who were high priests. 
He had a grandson who was high priest. And if you read in the story here, you're going to find that Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So he had a daughter who wasn't a high priest, but she married one who qualified to be a high priest. So he had this huge religious machinery going. Now, if you study further in Scripture, you're going to find that there was this issue going on between Annas and Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't have an issue because he was the authority over all issues. But Annas had it. Now, why was that? Because if you remember, there was a time when Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. Do you remember that? When he did that, who was the high priest then? It was Annas at the time. So what Jesus was doing was disrupting the money machine that was going on. Maybe for our language today, we would use the word, Annas was like the godfather. He was the mafiosa father of the religious sect. Or religious sect of the Jews, the high priest. I shouldn't say sect. Now you have Caiaphas that's going on. But you say, well, why would they refer to Annas' high priest and Caiaphas' high priest? Well, let's bring it back to us today as far as president now. We have our own president in office, so we're going to call him president. But the presidents who are not in office any longer, if you see them on talk shows, usually the interviewer will still refer to our president, who is now retired from his role of presidency, as president. In a sense, that's what's happening here with Annas. Now, the interesting thing is as we get into this trial, it begins to show you a trial that was not fair. It starts right out with Annas himself doing the questioning. So let's look at the passage again. So Annas gets involved in this because they bring him to Annas. Probably they did that because he was the, uh, the figurehead of the, of the statesman of the high priest. And that's why they brought, it to, brought Jesus to him first. So they begin starting out here by saying what's going on. And we're going to pick it up at verse, um, oh, let's pick it up at verse 19. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus, that's still referring to Annas, about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. So there's nothing that hasn't already been heard by others, meaning the fact you should be bringing other witnesses here because you need to question them legally before you question me. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him. Now let me pause for a moment. Parentheses. Do you know the verse that says that when you're struck on one cheek, you should turn the other cheek? Remember how they talk about that? This is an example of what Jesus means. It doesn't mean I turn one cheek, go ahead and hit me with the other cheek, and then I'm going to nail you. What it really is is this. I have my one cheek. I give you my one report. You now come at me. I will still explain myself. Now, he could have wiped them all out. He didn't do that. What he did was to, one more time, set the record straight by telling the truth. So when you're put in a position, you may turn one cheek to someone and they'll come at you with whatever they might come at you with. Then you just come back and you turn the other cheek. And with grace, but truth, you share the truth with them. And then you allow the Lord and His infinite wisdom to work through that circumstance however He chooses with you. And of course, that's what happened here, and Jesus went to full, full course. Back to the passage again. So then he one more time says to them, all right, I am who I said I was going to be. Why do you question me? When he had said this, he was struck. And Jesus said, 
If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? You have no right to do this. I'm not condemned to do anything wrong here. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, which is now saying Annas couldn't really do anything. He was a figurehead high priest. He now realizes that this is getting out of hand. This is not where it should go, that the right person that could bring the final judgment religiously is going to come from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now, if you will, look up here because I want to talk about the religious trials, the three phases. First of all, you had the time when they were with the religious leaders at the time. I'm going to throw Annas into that. The second religious part of the trial is when, he, when Jesus stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The third time was the not, not that night, because this is a nighttime thing going on. It's the next morning when they re-met again, and they confirmed the verdict of what they wanted to do with Jesus at that time. So there was three kind of trials. Now, when you hear the word trial, sometimes we think in our American system that everything was all done right, every, all the right actions were done, the system is working the way that it should be. This particular trial was so far out, so inappropriate, because they had one thing in mind. They needed to get rid of Jesus. Now, part of it is because they were a little bit afraid. If Jesus is going to cause some problems, this could bring down the Romans upon all the Jews at that time, and we would have a horrific amount of bloodshed in Israel, particularly Jerusalem. It wasn't too hard to think that way. If you remember, you had the week before Jesus went to the cross, you remember how they got him a colt? They put him on a colt. They put all these palm fronds in front of him and everybody was hailing him, king of the Jews and worshiping him. And now we're almost to the end of that week and things are starting to change and they didn't want to rally up all the people against Jesus at that point. At least the Jews didn't want to do that. So they got back to this. So that's where we are. What you'll see in your notes now is I've given to you, it wasn't a fair trial. I've given you at least nine examples of why this wasn't a fair trial. You can go through them very carefully. The answers are all there. The number of witnesses was not correct. The witnesses didn't agree. The nature of the accusation was changed. They started out with blasphemy. If you remember, they were telling him, you can't be God, you're blaspheming God much earlier on. And now they're trying to bring him before the Romans, and that's not going to work, the blasphemy part. So now they have to now get him on treason. Oh, he's king of the Jews. He's going to be a king, and he's trying to raise up his own army to go against the Roman government, all right? So that's treason. A man arrested for a capital crime could not be arrested at night. And if you remember, they came with him with torches because it was nighttime. You'll see later on that they're warming themselves up by a fire because it was nighttime. If a man was arrested for a capital crime, no one who cooperated in the arrest could in any way be associated with the accused. We know that Judas was already in a three-year relationship with Jesus Christ as part of his disciple team. No Jewish trial could be held at night. We already know this is already beginning a Jewish trial at night. A court was not immediately to pass judgment on a capital crime. If you read more, you'll find that it's usually one or two days before they would final, finally give judgment. Here they didn't do that. They were doing it almost immediately. Witnesses had to be called before a prisoner could be questioned. And all through this, you're going to see not only Annas, but Caiaphas also doing the same thing, asking questions to Jesus before they brought up any of the witnesses. A prisoner could be asked no question without, which would incriminate them of a capital crime. So in a sense... Jesus was pleading the fifth or could have pled, pled the fifth on that. So what's the verdict in this section of Scripture? Simply that Jesus is innocent. And he really was innocent. The trial was a kangaroo court kind of a situation. I guess I look at my own life and I say, what was going on here? Watch this now. See if you can capture this. Here is this religious machinery coming against Jesus Christ. 
And I was asking myself, what would be maybe one of the reasons, other than Satan was trying to do away with Jesus, trying to um, um, prove to the world that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, and of course that's not working, but on a practical level, what was happening? These men, these priests, high priests, they did not want to change. All they had to say is, you know what, we are wrong, we repent of what we've done, Jesus is who he claimed to be. We've studied the Old Testament references that he is the Messiah. We're starting to see everything about the Messiah, at least to his first advent, is now coming to pass right before our eyes. We are wrong. We fall down. We trust in you as the Messiah. You are Lord of all and you are my Lord as a believer in Christ. All that could have happened. They didn't do that because they didn't want to change. Now, let's bring it fast forward here. Again, this is my personal opinion. I'm not representing the church on this. My personal opinion. I look at these late night comedians. I look at the ones they bring to our island, usually around the holidays. And they pack out our civic centers and our auditoriums. And these guys are known for writing, communicating, and saying the most God-awful things about Jesus Christ and Christians. And you wonder, here they are with all the truth and how many times they have heard the gospel. I imagine that they probably could give the simple plan of salvation as good as any one of us can, that they have heard it. But in their heart of hearts, they have not come to a point of brokenness. They have not recognized that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And they keep throwing all that out. Now why? What do you think is likely to happen if they did come to a point and they finally did an, an inner search of who they are in their lostness, if they finally once came to grips who Christ was? They would not be sought after for television shows interviews, books, auditoriums, civic centers. The first person to ask when some Christian falls what they think of them. Their money machine would be completely gone. So many times what keeps a person from trusting Christ will be simple things like money, maybe bitterness over something that's happened in the past, perhaps moral impurity that's got their minds so confused. And at the root of all of that, it's a simple five-letter word in the English language. It's pride. It's pride. And so I look at all of that, and so since I don't want to point my fingers at everybody else for a moment, I want to ask myself this question. Am I willing to change? I have before me all the scriptures. I've studied it in all the languages. I've got my degree in all of this. Am I willing to let Jesus Christ be who he is to me and am I willing to respond to him in belief and obedience? And if I am, am I willing to change? Are there things in my life that I'm still holding on to that I still won't change yet? So I'd like to suggest as we bring this message to a close today that what you might do is make a list of one or two or three things in your life that you're struggling with change and see if those things are because you really are not yet fully ready as a believer in Christ to make him the Lord of your life. There are certain things you want to hang on to because of fear or pride or greed or bitterness. And maybe for you, the simple first step as a believer in Christ is to say, Lord, I want to be totally surrendered to you. So Lord, I'm not there yet. It's going to take a big man and a big woman to pray this part. But Lord, you make me willing 
Now, some of you are afraid. I would be afraid sometimes to say, Lord, make me willing, because we think sometimes that he's going to squash us and a lot of bad things are going to happen to bring this brokenness. I want you to know that sometimes when God brings about a change in our life and we're saying, Lord, make me willing, Romans chapter 2 says the goodness of God could bring about repentance. So sometimes there's going to be an avalanche of goodness. And when you start looking at your life and what God is doing, let that bring about a change. Let Him change you. Let His Spirit begin to work within you. Let those grave clothes come off of you in that new born-again experience that you have with Him. Well, the first verdict is He is Lord. The second verdict, He is innocent. Now the verdict for your life and my life is will you trust Him as your Savior? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Well, we didn't finish our outline for today. That's okay. You have a lot of information upon which to chew. But that sets us up for next week because I want to begin next week talking about Peter on trial. There are some significant things about denial in his life. And so some confusion about some of the passage there about who was this disciple and why did some have certain access to the high priest and not others. We're going to talk about that. But for right now, you have enough and I have enough today to talk about. First of all, when you feel that you are fully engulfed with issues in your life that are swamping you, who do you turn to for the power to be able to respond in a Christ-like way? Is it Christ? Will you go to Him? How is your prayer life? Do you see Him actively involved in every area of your life? Secondly, when God commands us to do something, He gives us the ability to do what He commands us to do. So no commandment comes with an inability. Oh yes, in ourselves we can't do it, but in Christ we can do it. In fact, He gives us, I think, more ability to do His command than what we actually need. For we have all the power of God necessary, that resurrection power. But to know what His commands are, we have to get into Scripture. So this week, as you're reading the Bible... I want you to ask yourself through every portion of Scripture, is there a command in here that he wants me to obey that I haven't been on a regular faithful basis? Lord, is there a command here today that I need to obey? And then I want you to know that he still protects you and me when we do the stupid things. When, we, when our heart seems to be right, Peter's life was, heart was probably right, trying to protect Jesus and you know push the guys back some and... Got a little out of hand when he did it, and that was wrong. We know that. We're not justifying what he did, but we can have an understanding spirit, can't we? But then there's that protection of Jesus. Would you just sit down for a moment and rest in the fact that he's really protected you? He's going to take care of you. Now, we do know that Peter did die a violent, martyred death. But Peter never lost his salvation because Jesus protected him and gave him eternal life, and not one would be lost. And that not only included Peter, but you as well. Would you worship him for that? And then as a believer in Christ, you see all that Jesus went through with all these people who didn't want to change. Do we want to be like the Anasis and the Caiaphases and not change, not recognize who Jesus really is and what he wants out of us? And maybe allow the Lord to help you get rid of something that needs to be gotten rid of in your life. A hurt, a hang-up, a habit. Or maybe your change is to start doing something that you've been fighting for a long time. 
Maybe going to someone that you need to ask forgiveness or to talk something through. I don't know, but the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now. Are you willing to change? Are you so caught up into your own persona and your own machine that you won't change? The Spirit is all there for power. The reason is all there, the glory of God. And the time is now. And now if you would let me speak to those that are outside the faith. We're not just talking about some poor religious leader who got a raw deal. We're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who purposed himself to go through all of this, to give his life and to go through this horrible mockery of a trial. And this is just the religious one. Wait until we get in to the political one. And he did all of that as he was walking toward the cross, where upon that cross he would die His blood would be spilled all over the ground like the Lamb of God that shed His blood. And He did that for you and for me and He rose again. So this is God in the flesh to pay for your sin and mine, to give you eternal life. And so why don't you right now give it all up for Him? Instead of hanging on to your works or your religious memories of good deeds... Just come to him and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've done things wrong. Whether they're social or religious, I know that I'm not perfect. I want to have an eternal relationship with you. And you went to the cross so that my sin would be forgiven and I could be in heaven with you forever. And so I'm coming to you with my little faith that I have. I don't understand all this Bible stuff, but I do believe that you are God in the flesh. I do believe you're going to the cross in that time and you have now gone to the cross and you paid my sin debt for me and you're offering me forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven. So right now, Lord, I am trusting in you. Now, my friend, that's all it is. It's sola fide, faith alone. And it has to be in the right object, Jesus Christ. Is there anyone in here today that's ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ? Here's what you could say. Lord, I know I've done things wrong. But right now I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for me. And that by my faith in Him, I have eternal life. And so Lord, I want to thank you for doing this for me. And I am now your child based on your promise because I believe in you. Thank you for that promise. Is there anyone in here today that's ready to make that claim before God? If there is, I'd like to pray for you. I care for you. Now, I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you, but maybe there's someone here that says, I'm doing that today, Pastor. I'm I'm trusting Christ. I'm I'm coming across that line by faith. And so you could let me know silently with that uplifted hand. And when I pray for you, my prayer won't get you into heaven any more than raising your hand does. But you connecting with Jesus Christ by faith alone, that sealed the deal. And now all this is afterwards. And I'd like to pray for you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, giving you a private moment in here to let me know this. Is there anyone here that today you've trusted Christ as your Savior and you'd like for me to pray for you because today was the day you did that? Would you slip up your hand quickly right now? Is there anyone at all? Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. The rest of you, would you take a moment as I pray for this one to think about what the Lord spoke to you about today? All he did in giving his life 
because he loves you and you matter to God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you save each and every one of us and that by our faith in you we have eternal life and it's more than just fire insurance. It gives us now the right and the ability to worship you and to praise you and magnify you and to glorify you with our life and our lips for the rest of our life. And then when we die, to have that extra little bit of grace, we have eternal life in heaven with you. And I thank you that it's all because of who you are. Thank you for that. And Lord, as we study about what you've gone through for us to get to the cross, they we realize that all of this was permitted and orchestrated to reveal how right you are and how wrong man is and how gracious you are and how needy man is. And our need is you. And so, Lord, even though we've trusted you as Savior, we still need you. We need you for the power that you've given to us now to use it and activate it by faith. The power to obey you when you easily give us the commands, not to take away our, our joy, but to enhance our life. To worship you and praise you for the fact that you take care of us. Whatever we go through, we know it could have been worse, but you protected us. Peter could have taken off that man's ear, or uh, head, but just took off his ear. You protected that man as well as you protected Peter. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Help us, Father, now to be willing to change and allow you to change us. And if not, help us to be willing to be willing. And so, Lord, out of this group, we'd see a holy church, a lighthouse in our community, loving Jesus Christ with the joy of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.